but uh, but here we are again. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, everybody's favorite book of sorrow and woe. Um, but uh, again, we haven't we haven't hit Lamentations yet. I know even even Amelia <laughs> in the back is like woohoo. We get to no uh, same emotion from Amelia as everyone else out here about uh, about Ecclesiastes. I get it. I feel it. It's fine. Um, Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's fine. It's a, it, it is a, a bit of a somber book. It is a bit of a, um, uh, a, a little bit, but it's, it is a sobering look at reality. And that's, uh, that's what we get to do this morning is we, we're going to take it. It's a 30,000 foot view, uh, one week of Ecclesiastes. That's all we're in it. Not uh, 12 or I think is what we did this year. Um, but Ecclesiastes is where we're going to be. And let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, every page of it, every book in it, God, I thank you for your word, that you communicate reality to us, that you communicate truth to us, that you communicate the gospel to us through your word, God, that it, it, is, it is for our good and for our benefit that everything in here, every bit of this word is good and is useful and is profitable for us, God, for teaching, for correction, for proof, for training in righteousness, God, your word is good for us, and God, I pray this morning that we, uh, we would have ears to hear what you're saying to us through it, and hearts that are, are ready to apply it, Father. God, we love you, and we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. When I was a kid uh, growing up in Houston, uh, my family and I would go to the, the Houston Rodeo a lot. Uh, we would go every year. We'd love it. If you don't know, if you're not familiar with the Houston Rodeo, it's a massive rodeo uh, it, it with, a, with basically a state fair that goes on outside the rodeo, and then you go into the rodeo, and there's uh, you watch the rodeo, and then there's a concert after it, and it's it's a big deal in the city of Houston. It's a lot of fun. If you ever get a chance to go to the Houston Rodeo, I highly recommend that you do because it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, but my family, uh, a couple years after living in Houston, uh, decided we heard a lot about the Houston Rodeo, and we were going to give it a shot. So the first time we were going to go, uh, we didn't really know much about it. We knew there was going to be a concert. We knew there was going to be a rodeo. And we knew that, like a fair, there's going to be a lot of fried food, right? Good food that's horrible for you. And uh, we, we were really looking forward to that. I had been told uh, that there would be funnel cakes. That's what I asked. I said, will there be funnel cakes? And I was told, yes, they're going to have funnel cakes because this is like a state fair. They've got to have funnel cakes. And at this point in my life, I had not had a funnel cake in a while. Like I, I had one when I was uh, when I was little. I remember having fond memories of that funnel cake. I don't know anyone who has had a bad memory of a funnel cake. If you do, we can talk about it later. But but most people just <laughs> just when it's gone, yeah. Uh, and so I, I remember having really fond memories of this funnel cake. And so I was really looking forward to this funnel cake. I asked my dad. I said, "Can I get a funnel cake at the rodeo?" And my dad promised. He said, "You can get a funnel cake." Like when we go to the rodeo. We'll get you a funnel cake. And so, uh, and so like a kid, I kind of latched on to that, you know, and, and like kids do, I had this, this idea in my mind about getting a funnel cake. And so I would talk about it like on the way to the rodeo, like picture a, a smaller version of me with a higher pitched voice being really excited about a, 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 a funnel cake. I was, I was talking, oh, I can't wait to go to the rodeo. I can't, wait to, I can't wait to eat a funnel cake. You know, I'm throwing this into random conversations. Like I'm really, really looking forward to this. One. And my, if my parents had any question on whether or not I was looking forward to this, they didn't have any question. I clearly, I was looking forward to this funnel cake. And, uh, and so we went, we walked around the fair area. We went to the actual rodeo. The concert had a great time. And then it came time for dessert. We left the rodeo. Uh, went out to the to the fried food areas and uh, and we went uh, and found the place that had funnel cakes and I my excitement was building right I'm getting really really looking forward to this now when we got in there we realized the funnel cakes were pretty big 
and I was not. And so it was probably, uh, I was going to have to split with someone. Like, I, I wouldn't get my own funnel cake. And th that was fine. I didn't, I didn't need, you know, a stomach cake. I just wanted a funnel cake, right? And so I, I was fine. I would split this funnel cake with somebody. Uh, and, and again, my dad promised I would get a funnel cake. And I was latching onto that promise. And I had built it up in my head so much, right? I was really excited about the fulfillment of this promise, about getting this funnel cake. And, uh, and my dad was true to his word. He got, he got me a funnel cake. The, the problem is that my dad didn't think through a lot of the, the next steps of what happened. Uh, he did, true to his word, got me a funnel cake. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't pair me with him or with my mom or with my sisters. We went to the rodeo with some family friends, and he paired me with a guy named Matt. And Matt and I would split this funnel cake. Now, one thing that uh, many of you already know about me that if you don't know this, it's important to know for the story. I don't eat after people. I don't drink after people. I'm not a, I'm not like a, a hardcore germaphobe, but I'm farther on that scale than most people. Um, and, and so I don't, I don't do it. I don't eat after people. I don't drink after people. Uh, something you should know about Matt, uh, is Matt is the kind of guy that would take a large group of people to McDonald's, grab all of their fries without asking, dump them on a tray in the middle and say community fries and, and leave them out there for everybody. Hated it. Like that's not even a, that's not even a made up thing. That's a real thing that Matt would do. Didn't like that at all. So that's the person my dad decided to pair me with for a, for a funnel cake. Was the guy who, uh, you know, pair the guy that doesn't eat after people with a family friend who, uh, who likes big community things and has no problems with it at all. Now, if I was paired with a family member, then probably what would have happened is we would cut it in half, let me have my half, or at least we would systematically work from, like, opposite ends, and then as I got close to their end, they would just have the, the last bit, right? Like, that's probably what would have happened. Not with Matt. Uh, not at all. I got to sit down at this funnel cake in front of me that I was really excited about, and I got to take a bite. And Matt, it was like he's, he systematically worked around the funnel cake. Like he would take a bite here, and then he'd take a bite there, and he'd take a bite there. I, three bites in, I, there was nowhere for me to put my fork in this funnel cake that he hadn't already put his fork in. And so I ate like three bites of funnel cake, and I was devastated. <laughs> like I was so sad <laughs> at the end of this rodeo. Like I'm going to the rodeo like, I can't wait for this funnel cake. I can't wait for this funnel cake. And we're getting in the car, and I'm like, I didn't get very much of my funnel cake at all. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was so sad. The reality is uh, my dad kept his promise. I got a funnel cake, but it wasn't. Even if I got a whole half of a funnel cake or an entire funnel cake, it probably wouldn't have lived up to the expectations that I had placed on this fried dessert. Uh, but the reality is that this, this promise, I as good as it was, and, and even, even though I got the fulfillment of this promise, it ended up being pretty empty for me. I, it, as excited as, as I was about the fulfillment of this promise, when I actually got it, I didn't, I didn't actually like it and enjoy it as much as I thought. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about the promises of the world. It's likely written by a guy named Solomon, who was king of Israel, David's son, the same guy who wrote the book of Proverbs, the same guy who wrote a lot of the Psalms. Uh, Solomon, uh, the same guy that wrote the Song of Solomon, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, Solomon was a, a, a very wise king, was a, a very, um, was a smart guy, very observant guy. And he, he, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is searching the world for their promises. He's looking at the promises of the world and everything that the world tells us we can have, everything the world promises to give us, and he is looking at the depths of the promises of the world. And what Solomon realizes in the book of Ecclesiastes is that the promises of the world come up empty. The world has promised you a lot of things. The world has made you 
a lot of promises. And, and you and I are, have, have bought into some of those promises. We have banked hope in some of those promises. And the reality is that we may get those promises. They may be fulfilled. But at the end of the day, we, we have staked our hope and our lives and our joy on the promises of the world. And they're going to end up being nothing more than a few bites of happiness filled with sorrow and regret and pain. Like as good as the promises of the world might be, and as great as they sound, and as promising as the things of the world seem to be, they will ultimately always come up empty. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us this morning. So let's look this morning at three promises, three things that the book of Ecclesiastes really highlights, three promises of the world, and, and, and they highlight, the book of Ecclesiastes highlights these promises and then debunks them and shoots them down. And so let's look at these three things that the, the book of Ecclesiastes teaches. The first thing, the, 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 the first promise is the promise of fulfillment. And what the book of Ecclesiastes says is the promise of fulfillment is hollow. Promise of fulfillment is hollow. Notice with me in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. This is kind of the theme verse for the entire book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This pops up over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. This phrase, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or vanity of vanities, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Like this comes up again and again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. What that word vanity means is emptiness, hollowness. It's a vapor. Like he's looking at the promises of the world. He's searching the depths of these promises. And every single time Solomon says it's empty. There's nothing there. This time in, uh, in particular the promise is one of fulfillment. Notice what he says in verse 12 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, striving after the wind. The world promises you fulfillment. The world says if you will just chase the right things, if you will just pursue things with your whole heart, if you will just dive in and pursue the things that the world is giving you, if you will follow these things, you'll get fulfillment. Right, think about money. Some of you in this room are struggling to pay bills or you're struggling to, to think about how you're going to make ends meet and you're or maybe you have enough money to pay your bills, but you, you have things that you would like to get, like a car or, a, or a, a, a house, and you just don't have the money for it. And, and you keep thinking over and over again, you, banking your hope on if I just could get a little more money, if I could just have more money in my bank account, if I could have more money in my wallet, if I could just expand the amount of money that I have, if I was able to buy that car or buy that house, then, then I'll be good. Then I'll be safe then I'll be secure, then I'll be happy. I don't need to be a billionaire. I just, you know, if I have just, if I have enough money to pay the bills and I have enough money to, to get these things that I really think I need, like a car or a house or whatever, like if I can just get these things, then I'll be good. And you are putting your happiness, your satisfaction, your joy on the line and pursuing just enough money. And, and whatever that amount is, it's not what you have today. It's some amount that's more. In the same way, 
some of you in here have no problems at all paying your bills. You have you have no problems with with the the making sure that you're 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 making ends meet. You're not thinking about those things. And if you uh, if you need a car or you want to get a house, like you have the the financial means to do that. Uh, and yet, you will anxiously look at the stock market, <laughs> and your hopes and your excitement and your Energy will be tied to the direction that the stock market is going. When you're looking at your portfolio or your retirement account, when things are going good, then you're happy. When things are going poorly and the market takes a downturn, then you're anxious and you're nervous. Like you think at the end of the day, if I can just get more, if I can grow the bank account, if I can grow my retirement account, if I can get a little more money, if I can get a little more finances, if, this, if the dollar amount in that account will be a bigger amount in the future, then I'll be secure. Then I'll be happy then I'll have what I need. I want you to look at Shark Tank. It's a great show, CNBC, a lot of fun to watch. Uh, A lot of fun kind of inventions that people throw out there, and there's always one that you're like, I don't know how they got on TV. But but I really like Shark Tank. Every single one of those sharks are worth tens of millions or hundreds of millions or, in some cases, a few billion dollars. And yet they're all there because they want to make more money. They're all there because they they're, they're think, well, I, I need my money to work for me. I want to, I, none of them are investing out of charity in Shark Tank. They're not like, let me give you some money to really see if you can get this going. Don't bother paying me back at all. Uh, like they want to make money. That's why the uh, Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank, that's what he says all the time. I'm do this to make money. Like I'm <laughs> how much money can I make on this deal? Like it's all about making more money for them. If there was a certain level, that we could reach in finances, in our, in our bank account, that would provide us with a, a measure of fulfillment, happiness, and satisfaction. Those people probably would have reached it. But they haven't. They keep pursuing more. They keep trying to get more, trying to grow their net worth, trying to grow their bank account, trying to grow their income. I've mentioned this before. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having a bigger bank account. There's nothing wrong with, with, uh, with pursuing a, a higher income. Like, there's nothing wrong with any of that at all. Money is a wonderful tool. Jesus refers to it as a tool several times. Problem is, when the world has promised you that if you just get enough, if you just get a little bit more, if you will just pursue the bottom line and get a little bit more money, you will reach a level of satisfaction. You will reach fulfillment. And that promise comes up empty every time. Some of you have, have bought into the, the, the promise that maybe it's not money, but maybe it's, it's career. Maybe you can do enough good uh, career moves. Maybe if you just get that promotion or you become a, a, high, a C-level executive or you get that career win, like that award and that, that recognition from your peers, that if you can just get to uh, the pinnacle of your career, and have those career advancements, then you're going to reach fulfillment. How many people who are rookies or sophomores in the NFL go to the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl, and then retire because they reached it? Right? That's true that, that older people in the NFL who have been playing for, for over a decade and, and have been wanting to retire but, uh, but just really want to get that ring, will retire after getting a ring like Peyton Manning or or Whitworth with the Rams, but, uh, but how many rookies or, so- or sophomores in the NFL will hit the Super Bowl and think, I'm good, I got it? Like, how many of the Rangers players are retiring today? Like, not, very few, any, none. Like, it's, uh, uh, 
Like we don't, we don't reach that career point and say, I'm fulfilled. I'm good. I've hit the peak. I am, I am totally satisfied. I have found the f- fulfillment of life. The world has promised if we will pursue uh, notoriety, if we will pursue likes and views on social media, if we will pursue uh, popularity with other people, if we will pursue the, the affection of somebody else, if we will pursue the, the, um, the, the affirmation and love from somebody else, if we will just pursue the things that the world has to offer, we're going to find fulfillment. We're, going, we're lacking fulfillment today because we're lacking something that the world provides. And we are promised that if we find it, if we can just pursue it, we're going to be fulfilled. But notice what, it, what Solomon says, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Solomon goes on to talk about all the things he tested himself with. Wealth, women, uh, things, possessions, trips, sightseeing. Uh, he, he talks about all the things that he pursued fulfillment in, all the pleasures of the world, all the things the world says, pursue these things and you'll get fulfillment. And he tried them all. And he says, that promise is empty. They will not bring you fulfillment. Notice what he says about wealth in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 10. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. The idea that Solomon is proclaiming is that, that if we put our hope in wealth, if we put our hope in the pleasures of the world, if we will just look for the things of the world to give us fulfillment, to give us satisfaction, to give us life and peace, we're going to come up empty every time. It's empty. It's hollow. There may be a measure of happiness. There may be uh, some excitement and joy by, by getting that raise, by getting that promotion, by, by getting financial security with your income. Like There may be a measure of happiness in these things, but at the end of the day, it's hollow. It's empty. You're never going to reach a point where it says, I'm good, I'm fulfilled, I'm satisfied, I've got enough. Like It's always going to come up empty. There's always going to be a need for more. And something else, and the world continues to promise you that that emptiness, that hollowness, that feeling like you just need more is going to be met and filled if you just get a little bit more. But it never will. It's hollow. Second promise that the world makes to us is the promise of purpose. And Solomon highlights the idea that the promise of purpose is futile. Futile, if you'd rather say it that way. The promise of purpose is futile. Look with me in verse 18 of chapter 2. Sorry, that helps. Chapter 2, verse 18. 
Solomon says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master for all of, for, uh, of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors because the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toiling and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. The world promises that you have a purpose, that you have a, a reason for living. And if you will just find that purpose, then you'll be good. And maybe it's not wealth. Maybe it's not career advancement. Maybe it's not those things. You're not looking for, for, for fulfillment in stuff. But the world promises you that if you just pursue your purpose, if you find your passion, if you find what you can do to help the world and make the world a better place, and you just tap into that purpose, then you're going to be great. Like your life is going to be awesome. You're going to, to finally reach that measure of satisfaction and peace and joy in life. You just have to find your purpose. You just have to do something good. Do a work that helps the world. That's ultimately what you need to do. Find your purpose and your place in the world. And Solomon says, I'm looking at my work. I'm looking at the things that I'm doing. I'm looking at the, the boxes that I'm ticking and checking off. All of my labor, all of my sleepless nights, tossing and turning about the, the stuff I have to get done. All of the, the, the work and the effort and the energy that I'm extending and extolling in order to accomplish the things that I'm trying to do. Like, like I'm pr he is king of Israel. Like He is pursuing his purpose. Right? He is, he is at the top of his game trying to do things that are good for the world, trying to do things that are good for his nation, and all of that work, and all of that toil, and all of that labor, and all of those sleepless nights trying to figure things out. And Solomon says, he takes a step back and says, it's empty. It's futile. The, the truth of what Solomon says is, eventually I'm going to die. And somebody's going to come after me who's going to reign in my place, and, and I don't have any control over what they're going to do. They could continue my work and build upon it, or they could tear it all down and, and destroy it all. And I have no control over that at all. Here's the reality. Whatever work you do for your company is going to be undone one day. Whatever good you do for the organization that you lead is going to come to an end one day. I want you to think about how many companies are around today that were around during the time of Christ, 2,000 years ago. That would be zero. Maybe close to zero, but it's, it's, it's zero. How many companies were around 1,000 years ago that are around today? A handful of restaurants in Europe and Japan. How many companies were around 100 years ago that are still around today? Percentage-wise, I mean, it's a higher amount, but it's still not 100%. Every company will eventually fail. Every organization will eventually come to an end. If we're talking in a, on a grand scale, like Jesus is going to come back and the world is going to be done away with and wiped out and restored, 
And so in that day, every company that exists on that day will be done away with. Every organization that exists on that day will be done away with. But I'm even talking just on a, on a smaller scale that, that every, uh, just eventually as a fact of life, every organization comes to an end. Every, uh, every business eventually goes bankrupt or closes up. Every organization eventually stops their, their pursuit of whatever their purpose was. Everything comes to an end. And so you and your business and your work are going to do a lot of good things for your company. You're going to do a lot of good things for your organization. And you can make the world a better place around you. You can make your company a better place while you're in it. And it's not going to matter one day. How many philanthropists do you remember from 500 years ago? How much of their work matters today? And from a, from a career standpoint, how many times have we seen someone work really hard for years and years and years or decades and decades, and then someone comes behind them right after they retire and undoes everything that they did? How many times do we see uh, really good executives, CEOs, leaders of a company or an organization leading the company with excellence for decades, and then the person that immediately follows them takes the company into the ground? And Solomon is saying, eventually, I'm going to die. And all of my work, I have no control over it anymore. I, I have no say in how things go. And eventually, no one's going to remember me. Nobody's going to remember the work that I did or the good things that I did for the world. Nobody's going to put two and two together and, and celebrate me and remember me anymore. You can pursue your purpose all you want. But at the end of the day, it's not going to matter in the end. You might live an excellent life, and you might do a lot of good. You might build a great company or a great organization. You might be someone who is highly regarded by the people around you. You may do a lot of great things in your life, and no one will remember you in a couple hundred years, if not sooner. And that is depressing. That's why nobody likes the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's really depressing. But it's a sobering dose of reality. Because if we have placed all of our hope and our purpose, and we said, this is why I'm alive. The world has given me a purpose. The world has given me meaning to life. I've just got to do this and pursue this, and everything's going to work out in the end. Everything's going to make sense. Everything is going to be good. It is hollow and futile. It is empty. The world can't give you a purpose. The world can't give your life meaning. Just doing good things for the people around you or building something that lasts is not going to imbue your life with any more meaning than it had because it's going to fail eventually. The promise of purpose is futile. This is a, a sobering thought that I have as a, as a pastor. Knowing that eventually, if the Lord calls me home or if he calls me somewhere else, someone's going to, to come up after me and I have no control over what they do after I'm gone. And because I love you guys and because I love the church, it's my heart that the church would thrive and grow and, and become a, 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 a healthy, vibrant body of believers that continues to grow on and on and on forever. And I have no say in that after I'm gone. That's why we train up leaders and that's why we, why we develop other people to try to, to continue to recognize that we are all temporary, that none of us are, are going to be here forever, but it's in recognition of the fact that, that, that it can't be about us. Because if it's our purpose, 
and our mission and our focus and me and me, eventually I'm going to die and, or, or you know, God's going to call me elsewhere or whatever. And I have no say in it, things after that. Promise of purpose is futile. The third promise the world makes is the promise of wisdom. If there is wisdom to be gained, there's information to be learned. If you can just grapple with it, if you can just grab onto it, then things are going to be great with you. The problem is the, wisdom, the promise of wisdom is unobtainable. Look with me in chapter 3. Verse 1, Solomon says, there is a t- uh, everything, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he launches into this poem that is, is well known. If you've read Ecclesiastes or if you uh, have heard uh, 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 this poem, you're probably somewhat familiar. There's a time to be born, time to die, time to plant, time to pluck up, on and on and on. This, there's a time for everything. But notice what Solomon says in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Again, bringing up that idea that there's a right time and place for everything. That there's a wise thing to do in every moment of every day. The problem is, continuing on in verse 11, also he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The idea in chapter 3, is that there is a right time and place to everything. That there is a right wisdom, a right wise thing to do in every moment, and the problem is that you and I just can't know what it is. We can't know it for certain. That's why he says in chapter 9, he makes it even more clear. Sorry, uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 23. Solomon says this even more explicitly. He says, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? What Solomon highlights is the fact that you and I are limited, mortal human beings. And so we can't see the future which means we can't know beyond a shadow of a doubt what the right thing to do is and the right time to do it. It's a great thing that there's a right time to do everything. There's a right time and place for everything, that there is wisdom out there. The problem is we can't grasp hold of it and make the right decision every time. We're never going to be able to do that because we are human beings. This is why casinos make a lot of money. Right? Because there's a, there's a right time and place for everything. There's a right time to, to double down. There's a right time to, to walk away. Like this is the, the Kenny Rogers gambler song, right? Uh, like there's a right, di- right time to fold them, right? Uh, uh, like there's a right time to do everything. Uh, and yet we as human beings can't know the future. And so when, because the, the house has a slight advantage and a slight edge in a casino, because we are people who just can't understand the future, who don't know it, we don't know the right time and place for everything, and we lose money at the casino. The problem with wisdom is the fact that we can't ever grasp enough of it to make the right decision every time. 
Wisdom is unobtainable. This perfect wisdom that, that makes sure that I never make a wrong decision and I always do things right. Like you're never going to reach that point. You're never going to reach the point of, of a Buddhist monk who says like I have figured out life. I have, I have transcended things. I have, I, have, I have transcended reality and I, I know how to do everything right. Like no human beings can ever possibly do that. We cannot know wisdom perfectly. We're never going to be 100% correct on every decision we ever make, every word we ever say, and everything that, that we want to do. There are going to be things that we just have to think through and figure it out, and maybe we make the wise decision. Maybe it proves to be unwise, but we're never going to be able to get it right. The world promises that if you just read a few more books, if you just get a few more experiences, you get another year in your job, if you just do these things, then you're going to grasp the wisdom that you need to make the right decision all the time. And it's not true. It's unobtainable. The world promises us a lot of things. It says, it says you can get fulfillment. It says you just need to follow your purpose. It says that you just need to get a little more wisdom. And the problem with all of those promises is they're all empty. There's nothing in the world that, that can satisfy us. There's nothing in the world that fulfills us. There's nothing in the world that can give us life. And this is what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is our, our takeaway this morning. There's nothing in the world that gives us life. Every promise in the world is empty. And so the greatest good for us is to trust in God. The world's promises are empty. Our greatest good, the greatest thing we can do, the best thing for us is just to trust in the Lord. This is how Solomon closes the book in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1, Solomon says, Remember also the Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. He goes on in uh, verse uh, 11, uh, excuse me, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ultimately, Solomon looks at all of the world, he searches everything, and he finds that it's all empty, and he says, here's the truth. You need to trust in the Lord. You need to follow him. The greatest good for you, and the greatest good for me, is to follow the Lord. Nothing in the world provides life. But what does the Bible teach us? The Bible teaches us that there's life available in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That by his death and his resurrection, he provides us with eternal life. That word, that concept, eternal life, it's not just heaven, it's not just life after death, it is this all-encompassing, beautiful reality that there is true life in Jesus. The thing that we as living beings are looking for in the world, the things that we're pursuing in money and in popularity and in career advancement and in wisdom and in purpose, the things that we're pursuing, that life that we're looking for is found in Jesus. It isn't just more air for our lungs after we die. It isn't just more a new body that we get when we're resurrected. It is life, eternal life in Jesus. It is found only in him. It isn't found in the world. It isn't found in the things that the world promises. It isn't found in the things that we can find outside of these walls. It is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. Life is only in Christ. So Solomon tells us our 
greatest good is to follow the Lord. To trust in him. To know him. It's a beautiful thing that, that Paul teaches in the New Testament. We talk about the promises of the world and how empty they are and how hollow they are. And it's a beautiful thing when Paul says in the New Testament, he says, the, uh, those who hope in the promises of God will not be disappointed. God has promised you eternal life in Jesus. And it says in the New Testament, we will not be disappointed. There is life in Jesus. That's a promise that we can rest in and hope in and stake our lives on that there is eternal life in Jesus, that there's life after death in Christ, that there's fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose and peace and wisdom that is found in Christ. There's a life in him and in nothing else. If you're here this morning, if you've never placed your hope and faith in Jesus, and you're recognizing that you are living to find and pursue the things of the world you are buying into and believing the promises of the world and believing that if you just get a little more, if you just get a little farther, if you just learn a little more than than you currently have, then you'll be fine. What I'm imploring you to do is to stop pursuing the, the, the pursuits of the world, to stop buying the promises of the world and to realize that life is available in Jesus. And this morning, in just a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And if that's you, if you want to place your faith and hope in Jesus and find the life that's available in him, I'm going to be standing right here. I'd love for you to come up. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you after the service about what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, stop buying the world's promises. You have already found life in Jesus. You have already been saved and set free from uh, from sin and death by Jesus. Stop running back to the empty promises of the world. You have already found them empty. You've already realized that there's no life and hope in them, and yet so many Christians will put their faith and hope in Jesus, and then they'll run back to fulfillment that the world offers, and they'll run back to the relationships of the world, and they'll run back to sin because they think that those things are going to provide them life. They'll run back to, to trying to find their purpose in their career and doing good things. They'll run back to trying to find wisdom and insight and knowledge in the world, and the reality is that you've got to stop buying into the promises of the world. We've got to fully and completely rest on Jesus. Be people that understand and know that the greatest thing for us is trust in the Lord. That life is in him and him alone. So while we sing, what I invite you to do is I invite you to spend some time in prayer. You don't have to immediately get up and sing with us. If this is speaking to your heart, if you acknowledge some things in your life that you're buying into some some of the world's promises, and what I invite you to do is don't, don't stand up and sing immediately with us. Spend some time in prayer at your seat. Come up to these steps and, and spend some time in prayer. Have someone pray over you. Have it, uh, pull me aside after the service and let me talk with you and pray with you over things. Like, you don't have to get up immediately. Spend some time in prayer and give these things over to the Lord and say, God, my hope and my trust it rests solely in you. Heavenly Father, You are the only provider of life. You're it. There is no hope and life available in anything else other than you. And God, I pray that we will stop buying the world's promises. That we will stop buying into the lie that there's just a a little more out there for us and then we'll be satisfied. 
That if we just pursue this sin or, or this thing, then, then we'll be happy. If we just find our purpose, then everything will click and everything will make sense. God, I pray that we would acknowledge that life is only found in Jesus. That you are the source of all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our satisfaction, and eternal life has been made available to us in Christ. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never experienced eternal life, who have never entered into a relationship with you. God, I pray this morning be the, the, the first time when they would put their hope and trust in Jesus, leave behind the empty promises of the world, and enter eternal life in Christ. And God, for the believers in here who know you, who love you, and are running back to the empty promises of the world, God, I pray that you would expose for them the emptiness of those promises and the hollowness of those pursuits. And God, that you would revive us as a church, spark our hearts and our minds, and raise our affection for Jesus because life is only found in him. Father, we love you and praise you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.